Amen. Good morning. Welcome. Beautiful day out there. A little windy, but very nice. Glad that you chose to be with us to worship here this morning. And if you're a visitor, if you're a guest, we're so glad to have you with us here in the friendly confines at Preston Crest. A couple ways you can follow along if you're interested in following along with the sermon. Uh, the bulletin, the worship bulletin you should have received walking in this morning has a sermon outline. Also, there's an app for your phone or mobile device called Uversion. It's free. And if you look under live events, we are there as well. And you can follow the sermon uh, there as well. I think I was about 10 years old when one time my sisters and I were down by Buffalo Creek in southwest Missouri on some property that we owned there. And I remember hearing one of my sisters calling, yelling, um, asking us to come over. And so I ran over there, uh, and she had found something pretty cool. She had found a large turtle, uh, the biggest turtle to this day that I've seen, like outside of the zoo, just seen in the wild. I mean, this guy was probably 18 inches across, just a massive turtle. Now, before I continue with the story... I need to point out that this wasn't just a turtle. It was a snapping turtle. And I think it would help for the rest of the story if I just read you a little bit of information about snapping turtles from the Wikipedia article. So here goes. Quote, In their environments, they are at the top of the food chain, causing them to feel less fear or aggression. In some cases, common snapping turtles are very aggressive if caught. They have a strong enough bite to easily cut off human fingers. Lifting the turtle with the hands is difficult and dangerous. Snappers can stretch their necks back across their own shell and to their hind feet on either side to bite. Now that last part I'm just going to repeat for you. Uh, kind of important to the story. <laughs> snappers can stretch their necks back across their own shell to their hind feet on either side to bite now up to this point in my life snapping turtle me is this little guy swimming around in the creek i didn't know they got this big well i reached down with both hands because he was big he looked pretty heavy reached down with both hands to pick him up grabbed him on either side of the shell started to pick him up when in an instant that last part of the Wikipedia article about the heads reaching all the way back. He reached all the way back around and got me on my left wrist. And by got me, I mean just chomped in and did not let go. And he's kind of dangling there off the ground, hanging on to my wrist. And it seemed like an eternity, probably five to ten seconds was all that he was holding on before I finally wrestled free. But my wrist was bleeding and hurt like crazy still to this day I have a very faint scar like 30 years later very faint scar of this okay 37 years later very faint scar uh, underneath my my left wrist from that uh, experience and I can just affirm this morning I this is one of the occasions but on many occasions I am thankful and reminded that I did not grow up in the age of social media where everybody had phones and was taking videos and stuff because I'm pretty convinced this would have been viral, right? This would have gone on YouTube. Complete moron tries to pick up Snapping Turtle. 
hilarity ensues. Uh, so I'm glad that I grew up before the age of social media. I got to tell you, that moment in time changed my perception. I'll never reach down and pick up another turtle again unless I know for a fact it's not a snapping turtle. There are average box turtles and terrapins, very friendly, very nice creatures. And then there is the guy who stands at the top of the food chain, the snapping turtle. Uh, and in that moment, I had to reevaluate what I thought about that guy. Uh, he changed my mind about himself. And this morning, we're going to gauge in uh, a series on the book of Mark, the gospel of Mark. And I believe what Mark is trying to do is to change our minds about Jesus. And certainly, we see in the very first chapter a lot of minds around Capernaum in Galilee radically changing what they thought about Jesus. Uh, and Mark, by the way, wastes no time in his gospel telling us that Jesus stands atop the universe's food chain. He is King. He is Lord. He is Messiah. And every person alive and who will ever live will have to answer to Jesus, right? Um, to encounter Him casually... To meet Jesus without appreciating who he is can be a dangerous thing. But to know who he is and to know his mission, that is the good news. And so Mark tells us in the first verse of his gospel, this is the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. Now up to this point in history... In the stories that the Bible tells, no one has ever been called the begotten Son of God except Jesus. And up to this point in Bible history, there's been a lot of talk about Messiah. He's coming, the anointed one of God, but no one has ever been labeled the Messiah, the Messiah, until this person, Jesus so we're going to talk this morning about breaking through to know the real Jesus. The first thing, it's there on your outline, bullet point this morning, is this. God broke into our world in the most personal way possible. The Son of God came to bring us the good news. God didn't send us a letter. God didn't carve information about himself onto stone tablets in this case. He sends himself. He sends his own flesh and blood. He wraps himself up in human skin and he comes to our world. And for centuries, and you can read about this in the Old Testament, God sent men and women as prophets to talk about his plans for us, to reveal things about himself. But here he comes wrapped in human skin. And that's good news, right? I mean, the God of the universe isn't content to sit back and issue orders and edicts and commands from some distant corner of the galaxy. He comes himself in human form, and he wants for each one of us to know him personally, to not just have information about him, but to have a friendship with him, and that is remarkable, and that is good. So he puts on human flesh, becomes one of us. Now, in Mark chapter 1... There are going to have to be some perceptions about Jesus from Nazareth. There are going to be some perceptions, perceptions changed. And we can't like rewind the tape back to what was it like 
before Jesus was Jesus, before Jesus was the Messiah, the Son of God, what would that have been like? But for those people, they experienced this snapping turtle moment when their perceptions were totally changed about this guy from Nazareth. First of all, his name was Average, right? Jesus, ah, name above all names. He was a Joe, a Bob, a Bill, a Robert in the first century. I mean, there have been like 70-something Jesuses from that time period unearthed in archaeological excavations. It was one of the most common names of the time. Jesus, or, or Yeshua, or the English version, uh, Joshua. There are four of these in the Old Testament. Very, very common name. And when he comes onto the scene in Mark chapter 1, he had the most common of occupations. He was a carpenter. And he was from the most common of towns, Nazareth. Think Seagaville or Little Elm or Gunner. I mean, just a regular old little town. Jesus, carpenter, down in Nazareth, a few miles south of here. And lest we think, There was something impressive about some sort of glow or aura about him. Look, if you were walking through Walmart and you walked past Jesus, wouldn't have thought a thing about it. Isaiah tells us in Isaiah 53, verse 2, there was nothing beautiful or majestic about his appearance. Nothing to attract us to him. If you encountered him, he looked less like a savior, more like a sales clerk. Less like a Christ and more like a carpenter. Less like God and more like just a guy. Okay? Average name. Average address. Average occupation. Average looking guy. But they would discover in Mark 1 he was no average Joe. Let's pick up the story here in verse 21. Jesus and his companions went to the town of Capernaum, right there on the Sea of Galilee. When the Sabbath day came, they went to the synagogue and began to teach. Back then, the teachers in the synagogue were just regular lay people, just people from the congregation usually. Now, the people were amazed at his teaching, for he taught with real authority, quite unlike the teachers of religious thought, the other guys that kind of ran through the synagogue from time to time. Suddenly, now picture this, okay? This is a church service, right? Jesus is teaching. Try to kind of imagine, I mean, like what we're doing right now. Suddenly, a man in the synagogue who was possessed by an evil spirit began shouting. Why are you interfering with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are. You are the Holy One sent from God. Jesus cut him off. Be quiet. Come out of the man, he ordered. At that, the evil spirit screamed, threw the man into a convulsion, and then came out of him. Amazement gripped the eye. You bet it did. And they began to discuss what had happened. What, what sort of new teaching is this, they asked decidedly. It has such authority. Even the evil spirits obey his orders. And the news, he goes viral. 
the news about Jesus spread quickly throughout the entire region of Galilee. Same day here. So they finished church. Jesus left the synagogue with James and John. They went to Simon and Andrew's home, probably very close, a couple hundred yards maybe, a block, two blocks. Now Simon's mother-in-law was sick in bed with a high fever. They told Jesus about her right away. So, of course, he went to her bedside, took her by the hand, helped her sit up, and the fever left her. And she prepared a meal for them. That evening, after sunset, same day, many sick and demon-possessed people were brought to Jesus. The whole town gathered at the door to watch. So Jesus healed many people who were sick with various diseases, cast out many demons, but because the demons knew who he was, he did not allow them to speak. By the way, Isla, when we took that group to Israel just a few years ago, we got to stand in the ruins of that exact synagogue. Real cool to imagine that scene there in that very place. So there they were, the good people of Capernaum, Sabbath day, Shabbat. They're gathered together at the synagogue. And this guy, kind of an unknown, starts teaching Jesus from down the road in Nazareth. And it's unlike anything they've heard. The way he teaches, the command with which he teaches. Isn't this guy the carpenter from Nazareth, they're wondering, and then suddenly the demon-possessed man interrupts the worship service with shouting and shrieking. He knows who Jesus is, and he's scared to death of Jesus. Have you come to destroy us? He, the demon says, I, you're not an average Joe. I know who you are. You are the Holy One sent from God. And Jesus casts the demon out. And I don't know if you notice this. There is no complex formula. There is no mantra that he recites. There is no elaborate ceremony. It's just be quiet, get out of him. And the demon does exactly that. Snapping turtle moment. He teaches with authority. He commands the spirit world. And word begins to spread around Galilee. But the day is not over yet. After the Sabbath service, they go to Peter's house where his mom is going to be fixing a meal for them. She is very sick, though. She has a high fever. Of course, Jesus waltzes in, heals her, and she starts fixing dinner. Barbecue's back on. After the meal, no surprise, he's the big news in the region. The whole town has come out to see what's going on. Sick people, all kinds of sicknesses. You can hear their moans and, and just visualize just that mass of humanity. Jesus heals them. Friends and family are there rejoicing. Other friends and family and neighbors have brought demon-possessed people. Jesus casts out the demons. And what the people see as they watch this is someone in total control. Jesus from Nazareth is known and feared in the spirit world. Jesus from Nazareth gives orders not only to the spirit world, but to the, the biological, physical, material world. He has command over diseases. Who, who does this? Who tells paralysis to be gone? Who tells cancer to leave? Who tells blindness to be banished? It's Jesus. He does that. Write this down. God confirmed the sovereignty of the king. 
He talks about a kingdom. He's the king. God confirms his sovereignty. The authority of Jesus is absolute. Now, John the Baptist, up to this point, John the Baptist is the only person who saw this coming. Earlier in the first chapter, this is what John the Baptist said about Jesus. He said in verses 7 and 8, Someone is coming soon who is greater than I am. Now, he's the big show. John the Baptist is the big show. Everybody's going out to the Jordan to hear this guy preach and to be baptized by this guy. But he says, someone is coming who is greater than I am, so much greater that I am not even worthy to stoop down like a slave and untie the straps on his sandals. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Jesus is no average Joe. So the Son of God began His teaching ministry and His message was simple. This is what He says, verse 15. Jesus says, The time has come. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. That's the message. The kingdom of God is It is breaking through into the world. Now, we don't live in an age of kings, or at least not in a country of kings. We don't recognize kingly authority, but back then, they knew what it was to be a king. The king had final authority. What the king said was law. Within the borders of that kingdom, the king was responsible for everything. The safety and protection of the people and the subjects owed their loyalty to him. When he said something, they obeyed. If they did not, they were living in rebellion and they could be executed for treason. The subjects belonged to the king. Their property belonged to the king. But even in the very first chapter of Mark we see that this is a different kind of king, a totally different sort of ruler. His jurisdiction, it doesn't end at that geographical boundary over there. The dominion of this king does not end at the realm of men. It includes the spiritual realm. The dominion of this king moves into the realm of physical illness. Even disease must comply with his edicts and commands. And that's good news. The king of the universe cares enough to become one of us and to give us a taste of what his rule is like. And where he reigns, evil runs for cover. And all manner of physical torment is banished. Wherever Jesus goes in the Gospel of Mark, in His walk, He gives people a taste of the kingdom of God, the place where God reigns as it was always meant to be, the world as it was always meant to be. And one day, that kingdom will be completely consummated. And the book of Revelation gives us a glimpse of what that looks like. And it says it will be a place where there is no sickness and death. It will be a place where there is no grief. There is no pain. And congratulations to Larry Erickson. He's there now. That world is coming. Get ready, the book of Revelation tells us. But as we discover, as we look at the story of Jesus This was a very hazardous mission for God to undertake. Write this down, second bullet point there. God assumed a huge risk here. 
In order to save us, he made himself vulnerable to us, vulnerable to his creation. And even vulnerable to the enemy to some extent. It says in chapter 1, verses 12 and 13, the Spirit compelled Jesus to go out into the wilderness where he was tempted by Satan for 40 days. Weeks of trial and temptation at the hands of the enemy. Weeks of hunger and thirst, physical exhaustion. I don't know about you, this makes me love Jesus even more. The risks that he took for me make me love him even more. The price that he paid to love me make me love him even more. And it is astounding, really, when you think about it. The God who created human beings actually grants human beings, grants us the option to say no to him, to reject him, to turn our backs on him. Jesus is king, but he leaves it up to you as to whether or not you will choose to be his subject. The king invites you to obey his commands. He doesn't force you to obey his commands. What king does this? Other kings didn't make obedience optional. They didn't allow rebellion. They didn't live among their subjects. Other kings didn't wrap themselves in a towel and wash the feet of their subjects, serve their subjects. But here's Jesus. For 30 years, the King of Kings, Lord of Lords, is working as a carpenter, preparing for his mission. And in actuality, he's not some average Joe from Nazareth. He's the king who has dominion without limit. The boundaries of his reign extend, think about this, to every square inch of the universe. And what did we do with Jesus? What did humanity do when the Creator came into the creation? We gave Him a crown of thorns and we hung Him on a cross. I'm in awe of the vulnerability of the King, willing to expose Himself to the evils of this world, all of them, so that we could experience the love of God. Thank you, Jesus. One final thing about the text this morning, I just wanted to say, it's okay to have doubts. It's okay to have questions. Certainty is overrated. When Jesus was hanging on the cross, He didn't say, God, this is fantastic. Your plan for my life, I love it. He said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Faith doesn't tune out darkness or doubt. Faith doesn't tune out darkness or doubt. And as we follow the disciples around in the Gospel of Mark, we will find them brimming with doubts and brimming with misgivings. It's okay to doubt. It's okay to question. Faith is not the opposite of doubt. Doubt is part of faith. In fact, faith without doubt is not faith. It's sight. 
Now, according to the story of Jesus, or I think when you engage it, it's not that someone couldn't make this up. It's that no one would make this up. I mean, you could invent this. You could, 2,000 years ago, decide, let's invent a new religion. Let's have God be born in a manger, and then he grows up. He's one of us. He's a carpenter. He performs some miracles. He ends up dying on a cross, and he's raised three days later. Let's make that story up. It's not that you couldn't make the story up. It's that you wouldn't make the story up. In fact, we know you wouldn't make the story up because the Greeks, the Romans, other ancient civilizations, they did make stories up about their gods. And none of them look like this. None of them look anything like this. The gospel rings true not because you couldn't make it up, but because you wouldn't make it up. Jesus, average name, carpenter, run-of-the-mill village, nothing special about the way he looked. That's not the way their stories looked about their gods. The gospel rings true not because you couldn't make it up, but because you wouldn't make it up. Decades back, I came to understand quite suddenly that a snapping turtle is not your average turtle. In Mark 1, the good people of Galilee understood that this Jesus from Nazareth wasn't your average Joe. What about you? What about you? Is Jesus saying these words to you today from Mark 1.15? The time has come. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. Are you ready to make him king of your life? Are you ready to move under his dominion and protection and grace? Are you ready to call Him Lord? Are you ready to wear His story as your own, being baptized into the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus? How will you respond to the King? Maybe this morning you just need prayers. However, however we can help you, and however you need to respond to the King, do that as we stand together and worship.